You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Good morning, everybody. How's everyone doing today? Yeah, good. Mm, love this corner. Great corner. Uh, it is, uh, it's really, really good to see you guys today. It's really good to be with you. Uh, if you're a guest, my name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here at Midtown. Uh, pleasure to be with you guys as always as a little family where we get to open up God's word together. Uh, as you heard Andrew mention just a few minutes ago, uh, we are starting a new series today, uh, a series that is going to lead us up into Easter uh, that we are calling Greater Than. And the inspiration for it actually comes from a quote that I have shared with you, I think numerous times in the past from a a pastor and an author uh, named A.W. Tozer. Uh, and this is what he says. He says that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. And listen to this. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. I love this. I love that idea, the gravest, which I know makes it sound like super depressing or whatever, but uh, interpret that as most serious. The most serious question before us always as God's people is how do we think about God? What comes to our minds when we think about who God is? Uh, I'll be honest. If we, I think if we were to be completely honest, uh, in light of the rigors of everyday life, uh, from work and navigating school and kids and family responsibilities and everything therein, I think the easiest, if not the default way of thinking about God for most of us, myself included, is to honestly just not think about him all that much at all in the day today. Maybe we pay a little bit of attention to him on Sundays or when we go to life group or whatever it be, but as we're going about life, it's just very easy for him to kind of move away from our thoughts. But what I would submit to us today and what this series is gonna kind of drive at is that when we actually do that, we actually miss out. We miss out on all that God has for us. A verse that I've been meditating a lot on over the past several months has been Psalm 16, verse 11. Uh, and it says, you make known, you God, make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That this is the life that the God of the scriptures has promised to us. This is what he has promised us to, and offers to us when we draw near to know him, that seeing him for who he is and being in his presence is where life and joy, peace and prosperity are actually going to be found. And so as we start journeying toward Easter together, okay, uh, the day where we, in my opinion, celebrate the most monumental display of God's character that we have ever seen, as we journey toward Easter together, what I, what I really wanted us to do is to drink deeply for the next couple of weeks uh, about who God is and what he's done, to drink deeply from his majesty, uh, from his grandeur, from his goodness, to see and to savor him for who he is. And so that's what we're gonna do. My prayer is that these next three weeks are faith-stirring and affection-growing for you towards him. 
And that's what I'm asking him for, that he would birth that in us. And so we're going to kick things off in a book of scripture that you may or may not be familiar with. It is the book of Job. It is in the Old Testament. Uh, And what I'm going to do today is I'm going to do a bit of an overview to start, and then we're going to dig in on some specific parts in chapters 38 through 42. Uh, So if you want to go ahead and get your Bible and turn there or click there or whatever it is, please feel free to go ahead and do that. Uh, As you do that, I just want to mention that there have been quite a few books that were particularly influential in this series, and you can find them all on our series resource, uh, excuse me, series resource page. Uh, but one in particular that I want to draw your attention to and commend to you uh, is the book Not God Enough by J.D. Greer. J.D. Greer is a pastor in uh, Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina, uh, and he wrote this book, and it is a delightful exploration of God's majesty. Uh, It really did bless me personally in prep for this series, and I believe it would be a blessing to you. Uh, I think it'd be a great companion for you to read along for the next couple of weeks as we dive into a lot of this stuff together. But all that being said, let's jump into the book of Job. All right, so here we go. So the book of Job uh, is something of an anomaly in the Old Testament. All right, so for example, this is how it, how it starts. This is Job chapter 1, verse 1. It says that there, there was a man in the land of Uz named Job. So where exactly is Uz? Your silence speaks volumes. We don't know. Like, we have no idea where Uz actually is. Scholars don't really know where Uz was really located. What what time period is this actually written in? We don't really know that either. Well, what's the genre? Is this history? Is it poetry? Is it a parable? Something like that? Uh, Yes, it maybe we we don't really know. Again, we don't know. Scholars don't really uh, have an idea. They argue that this is actually kind of the point, though. Scholars argue that it's kind of the point uh, to this lack of detail. It, what it's meant to do is draw our attention, rather, to the universal themes being addressed in this piece more than the specific details themselves. Themes like, what do we do when God doesn't make sense to us? This is one of the big themes throughout the book. What do we do when God doesn't make sense? What should we think when God does, or rather doesn't do something that we expect him to? When his actions don't seem to line up or don't make sense according to what we know about him? How should we approach him and approach the times in our lives when this voice inside of us is crying out, why? God, why this? Why now? What is happening? Where are are you? What is going on? These are the things that Job hits on. You know, every one of us, if you have not already, will likely find ourselves in a position that is asking these questions at some point in time in our lives. I know some of us are living in those sorts of questions right now, where you can't make sense out of what God is doing, and you you would really like for him to give you some answers. And if you've ever felt that feeling or if you've ever felt that way or thought that even feeling that way made you something of an, a wallflower or an outsider in God's community, I, I just want you to take some encouragement and some comfort in the life of Job and in this, in this narrative because what this tells us is you're not alone. It, you're not alone in that experience. To have these questions, to wonder these things about God, it's actually very normative in the life of those who belong to God's family. In fact, this is a bit of how we first get introduced to Job. So in the opening pages, the opening pages tell us that Job is a guy who has lots of wealth, lots of prosperity, lots of kids, and he's described as being blameless and upright, that he is a good dude. He's a dude who loves God and follows God to the absolute best of his ability. In fact, it tells us that he even goes out 
and make sacrifices every day for all 10 of his children just in case they sin unintentionally that day. He's a good dude, all right? This is a good, good dude. Um, But right after this first little introduction, the scene sort of shifts, and we're taken into this sort of heavenly staff meeting with God and all of his heavenly beings where the accuser, or as we call him, Satan, comes to God and says, you know, the only reason that people like Job love you is because you give him a good life. If you took his good life away, he wouldn't love you anymore. If you took away this wonderful life you've given him, he wouldn't want to love you. He wouldn't want to follow you anymore. And this is what happens in verse 12. It says, and the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Essentially, God says, okay, Take everything from him and let's see what happens. Take everything from him from him, and we'll see how that goes. And so this is exactly what Satan does, which right out of the gate, I don't know about you, raises some questions for me, right? Like this is a very weird scene. And it's questions, honestly, that I would have and I'm sure you would have if you were in this situation as well. And it's questions that Job raises and he asks for the next 35 chapters or so. But regardless, this is what happens. And get this, Job doesn't stop loving or honoring God in the midst of it. He doesn't accuse God of sinning against him. He doesn't accuse God of doing anything wrong to them. In fact, in verses 21 through 22, Job says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. In fact, throughout the whole narrative, while Job does strongly contend for answers to his questions, and he strongly asserts that he doesn't deserve the suffering that he's going through, he never once accuses God of being in the wrong or sinning against him. And for what it's worth, I think that's an important little nugget for us as well when we consider our questions and our doubts and our struggles. Because it's very easy, and those seasons for us, It's very easy for our questions about God to slide into accusations against him, to go from, God, what is going on? Why is this happening? To, God, you're wrong. You're wrong and you've done wrong, which I hope, as we'll see in just a few minutes, is a bit of a problematic position to take. And so it starts this little back and forth where Satan progressively takes more and more away from Job, all of his kids, all of his wealth, even his health. And still, in the midst of this, Job blesses God. But he does have questions. He does wonder what is going on here. Questions that come up when his three friends come to visit him in his grief. Now, for what it's worth, sometimes his friends catch a bad rap here. Sometimes you'll hear people say that his friends were not good friends. I just want to say that is not true. Job has some very, very good friends here. They came to be with Job in his darkest moments, taking time off of work, taking time away from their own families to come and be with this person that they cared about in his suffering. That is the definition of a good friend. They are good friends. They're just good friends with some bad theology, much like many of your friends, if I may, right? But they're good friends, And when Job starts to speak and question what God is doing, their response is, listen, Job, we know how God works. You must have done something. The problem here is you must have done something because, listen, we know how God works and he wouldn't have done this to you unless you deserved it. They have this view of God that is easily explainable. It's God in a box, so to speak. It's easily explainable. God is just and he deals justly. So if something is wrong in your life, then you must have done something to deserve it. So what you need to do is figure out what that is and repent of it, and then things will wind up going better for you. And Job is just like, listen, guys, I hear what you're saying, but I'm telling you, that's not true. 
That is not what has taken place here. I haven't done anything to deserve this. I haven't done anything to warrant what I'm going through right now. And that's the bulk of the remaining 35 chapters of the book. It's just this back and forth between Job and his friends trying to make sense out of the inexplicable, trying to make sense out of what can't be understood, trying to make sense about what God is doing and what Job knows to be true, which finally brings us to chapter 38. So let's pick up in 38 verse 1. It says, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. After all has been said and done and argued and pleaded and asked, God actually steps in. God actually comes to Job. He steps in and he speaks. And this is what he says. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Which is God's just funny way of saying, bro, what are you even talking about? (laughs) What are you talking about? Verse three, dress for action like a man. The Hebrew is more literally translated, gird your loins, which I just like. I just wanted to mention that. I think it's, I think it's awesome. Like I just, it carries a little bit more oomph in my opinion, but dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Essentially, I hear the questions. I hear the questions you have of me, but allow me to turn the tables just a little bit and give you a few things to consider. And then God rattles off some 60-odd questions in a row about Job's understanding of things, ranging from all sorts of topics, from the vastness of space to the earth's weather patterns to the animals on the land and the creatures in the sea. Like in verse 4, for instance, it begins with, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Essentially, Job, where were you when I made this world that you live in? Can you tell me how I did it? Can you tell me everything that was going through my mind when I made and created this world that you have been enjoying so much? Or verse 12, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Job, remind me, who has been bringing up the sun each and every morning that you have been alive? Was that you or was that me? Or in verse 31 and 32, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season or can you guide the bear with its children? Here God is referring to different constellations and he's asking Job, did you put these stars in place? Did you set them up the way they are set up? Job, was that you who put them in the exact position they are in such that when you look up at the sky from earth, you would actually see a pattern? Was that you or was that me? And then in chapter 41, verses one through five, can you draw out the Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Verse five, will you play with him as a bird or will you put, on a, put him on a leash for your girls? This is a reference to some sort of giant sea creature. Some scholars think he's talking about a whale or an alligator or a hippo or, or something. I don't really know what it is, but God is basically saying, I'm sorry, Joe, but can you make this beast your pet? like I can? Can you walk him around at the dog park like I do? No, Job, you can't. And then there's some really random ones in there too, like in 39.1, basically God says, Job, how much do you know about the reproduction habits of goats? Are you aware of the ins and outs of all of this? Or in 38, 13 through 37, God essentially asks, can you tell me this? Can you tell me why ostriches are so big and proud, but also so ugly and stupid? Do you know why I made them that way? Do you know what that is all about? With all of these questions, God is asking, who's the expert here, Job? Who's the expert? Is it me or is it you? 
And that might sound a little, little bit over the top to you, like, hey, is God just trying to bring the proverbial hammer to Job? Is that what is happening here? And the answer is no. Actually, what God is doing is God is attempting to give Job some perspective. He's trying to give Job some proper perspective to help him see that, Job, if you can't fully fathom the mystery of all of these natural things, do you really think that you are in a position to fully understand eternal things? If you can't fully comprehend everything into the minute details on the small and the, and the big scheme of here on natural earth, can you possibly expect to understand everything that is eternal as well? But prior to that moment, Job did. And the truth is, is that we often do too. We live in an age that the author Tom Nichols uh, calls in his book by the same title, The Death of Expertise. And in it, his, his basic, basic assertion is that we have so much content in front of us, whether it's Google or social media or the 24-hour news cycle or whatever, where instead of it making us more intellectually advanced, we now think, we now think that we are the experts on any given topic. Here's what he says in his own words. He says, these are dangerous times. Never have so many people had so much access to so much knowledge and yet have been so resistant to learning anything. The public constantly searches for the loopholes in expert knowledge that will allow them to disregard all expert advice they don't like. And all God's medical professionals and teachers said amen. There, there we go. Listen, I'll be honest with you. Uh, at times, I can be a walking case study in this, okay? Uh, I tend to be a little bit of, what was the word? Um, a hypochondriac, all right? Uh, I tend to be just, not a lot of bit, just a little bit of a hypochondriac. My wife says that I have a flair for the dramatic or something like that. And basically, I'm just the guy who will check his symptoms on WebMD and then be totally convinced that this ingrown hair on my arm is carcinoma or something like that. Like, it's, it's a problem, I know. And what I need is, I need someone to be able to say to me, hey, Bailey, Stay in your lane, bro. You don't know anything. Here's some topical ointment. Go and get a good night's sleep, okay? Like, I need, I need that in my life because I am prone to think that I am far more of an expert than I actually am. I need somebody with some greater wisdom, with some greater knowledge, with some greater perspective to come and calm me down just a little bit. And I know some of you are doctors and nurses and teachers and the like, and you went to school for years upon years becoming experts in your field. In fact, many of you continue to study just so that you stay on top of everything going on at your job. And people and I can't imagine how you feel when you have to interact with people like me or worse. People who come to you for whatever reason who say, hey, listen, I know you went to school for a decade, but I read an article and my friend's friend's mom had this thing happen to her. So I think you're wrong. I think you don't quite know everything that you're talking about. I mean, how bewildering must that feel for you? And that's a bit of what is happening here between Job and God. And the truth is, is that we are all prone to do it. Doubt, skepticism, cynicism, and near constant questioning and distrust of authority are just the air we breathe. And so is it any wonder, is it any wonder then that we would then turn this on God to believe that we have enough information to accuse God of wrongdoing when we can't make sense of him or what is going on in our lives or in the world around us? In times of uncertainty or struggle or doubt, like it is a common occurrence to put God on trial, right? To demand that he answer our charges against him. 
And listen, please, please don't mishear me. Like, I am not saying that doubt or having questions is a bad thing and that you should feel bad for having them. No, not at all. In fact, I don't know of a single mature follower of Jesus who didn't also deeply struggle with seasons of doubt. Like, doubt is not the enemy here. The point is not, point is not to be a person without questions, but rather to be a person who grasps just who it is they're talking to. You understand? The truth is, is that many of us have never truly wrestled with or grasped the fact that God is a being of unfathomable magnitude, unfathomable unfathomable magnitude, wisdom, and goodness. We haven't truly grasped that he is a being that has perspective that we don't actually have, perspective that we can't really have as created beings. For many of us, we haven't haven't rejected God per se, but we have merely reduced him. We assume that he is on the same playing field as we are, and that if anything, he's maybe just a little bit stronger or a little bit smarter than us, that he's just a slightly more enhanced version of me. And And we fail to realize that if we have a God who is big enough to question then we also have a God who is big enough to have answers that we can't understand. In the words of Evelyn Underhill, I love how she says it. She says that a God small enough to be understood is not a God big enough to be worshipped. A God small enough to be understood is not a God big enough to be worshipped. Or in Greer's words, a God that we can predict, instruct, and control is not a God who will captivate our affections or command our devotion because he's not God enough. He's a God we can never really trust because he's not wise or glorious enough to account for all the glories and the tragedies of our existence. He's not big enough to be worshiped. And because we have never truly considered how much greater his wisdom must be than ours, or how much higher his ways are than ours, or how much purer his thoughts are than ours, we think that what we need is just a few more answers. We think that we just need a little bit more explanation. And then that's not just something that would satisfy us, but it's something that God actually owes to us. But we're wrong. We're wrong to think that way. And the message of God to Job, and subsequently the message of Job to us, is we don't need more information. What we need is to behold who God really is. We don't need more information We need to behold the living God whose greatness is so great that it makes our minds explode when we try to comprehend the vastness of who he is and whose goodness is so, so good that we can't tell if we want to draw closer to him or run away in fear, that that's what we need. We need perspective on who our great God truly is. And so just as God invited Job to get some right perspective, God also invites us to get some right perspective as well, to know that he is God and we are not, and that's a really, really good thing. So I want to invite you to do a little mental exercise with me just to kind of help us process some of this. Uh, It'll probably work better if you close your eyes. I know this is daylight savings time, so you might all be tired and closing your eyes might be a threat of falling asleep, and we'll just roll with it, okay? Uh, but I would encourage you to close your eyes, and, and this, is, this is what we'll do. Uh, close your eyes, and I just want you to take a few breaths. Breathe in. 
Breathe out. Breathe in. Fill that air. Fill up your lungs. Breathe out. All of that. All right, now let's think about those breaths for a moment. Those breaths that you feel rising and falling in your chest. At this very moment, those breaths are being graciously given to you and sustained by this God. He knows every molecule coursing through your body. He is causing them to converge in your lungs and feed your circulation. And he's holding, holding together every cell within you right now. Understanding the precise ways that each one works exactly as he ordered them to do. He knows what each one is doing and he is the one who is keeping them going. And yet, as great as that is, our God is greater than that. He knows what sounds you're hearing right now, including but not limited to my voice and the feelings and emotions and thoughts that arise into you in this very moment. And he knows why you're feeling them and what has caused you to feel them and what has caused those causes. And furthermore, he's doing the same thing for the person sitting next to you and the person sitting next to them and the person next to them and next to them and next to them, as well as all the persons in the next building over and the building after that and in the next town over and the next city and state and country. In fact, he is intimately aware of everything going on in the lives of the 7.7 billion people in the world right now without even having to lift a finger. And you can open your eyes, but as great as that is, our God is even greater than that. In these same moments, he is sustaining every ecosystem on every continent and every body of water everywhere life in all of its diverse forms on our planet. He is overseeing the birth of every animal, the flight of every bird, the growth of every leaf on every tree that has ever existed, establishing every weather pattern and every season every harvest and every planting from the tiniest civilizations to the most complex, not one single seed of which got lost or forgotten by him, not one of which was hidden from his view. He was intricately involved in it all. And yet, our God is greater than that. I don't know what your particular view on the age of the earth or the universe is, but for the sake of this exercise, let's just take what most scientists estimate. They say that the universe is something around 13.77 billion years old and that the earth is about 4.54 billion years old and that human beings have been on earth for less than 200,000 of those years. To put those numbers into perspective, if you were to stretch out your arms and your entire wingspan was representative of earth's history, and then you took a nail file 
and took just a little bit off the edge of one of your nails, you would have just wiped out all of human history. And yet God was there for every moment of that time span. He knows what has happened on every single day from then until now. The rise and fall of every empire, every human invention that was ever constructed or ever will be constructed, the details of all of our art and literature, the intricacies and the craftsmanship on all of our designer genes, every square inch of human knowledge and technology that has ever been or ever will be, he knows before we even thought of it. He's experienced the love of every young couple, the joy of every birth of a child, the hopes and dreams of every human being that has ever existed. He's been present at every celebration and every pain, every tear of joy that has ever been cried and every cry of agony and grief that has ever been wailed. God knows, God sees, and God feels. And yet, God is greater than that. Not only has he been involved in the overseeing and knowing and commanding of all of these things, but, but not just in our world, but in every other world throughout the stretch of the cosmos. He has hung every giant ball of gas and every floating rock in the night sky of the trillion and trillions of them in the universe that came into being by his hand. The ones that we know of and the ones that we haven't even caught a glimpse of yet. He crafted them and put them in their their place, speaking them into existence with but a word from his mouth, giving each, according to the scriptures, their very own name. And yet, our God is greater than that. You could hear all of this and think, man, if that is who God is, then what am I? I mean, I am, I am nothing. I am a speck, an inconsequential detail in the scope of existence. And there is certainly a sense in which, in, in which that is true. Like our lives come and go like a mist or a dew, according to the scriptures. And we do well not to forget that lest we get too wrapped up in delusions of our own self-importance. But that's a sermon for another time. And yet this God, the God of this magnitude and this grandeur, this all-powerful, all-knowing God of the universe out of the overflow of the same cosmic power by which he created everything that has ever existed, including you and I, has used his divine power to come into our world that we may know him. That he came to each and every one of us, that he wouldn't remain this distant, far-off, theoretical, powerful being, but one that you and I can know intimately and personally. And if you're sleeping on it, you'll miss the profound way that the book of Job reveals this in verse one of chapter 38. It says, then the Lord answered. Then the Lord answered. After all of Job's questions and demands for an explanation, we see these four simple words come breaking through. Then the Lord answered. Whenever you see the Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, you gotta know that's, God, that's the use of God's special name that only his people called him what you may hear referred to as Yahweh. 
Yahweh, the covenant-keeping, Messiah-bringing, sin-correcting, kingdom-conquering, God of the universe is here to enter into a conversation with Job and all of his questions. He stoops down like a loving parent to a child and meets Job where he is at. I love the way that Tim Keller talks about this. He's a pastor in New York. He says that we're told that Yahweh answered Job out of the storm. This phrase, as generic as it looks to us in English, is significant. Many readers, such as George Bernard Shaw, have understood God's speech to Job as a sneer and a jeer. But in Hebrew idiom, to speak to someone indicates one-way communication of an authority to an inferior. But to answer or to reply to expresses a dialogue between two parties. It is striking then that when God shows up, he enters into a dialogue. He does not come simply to denounce. In other words, God is inviting Job into a relationship. God does not just give Job right perspective, but he also brings to Job right relationship. And in the same way, God is not just inviting us to have right perspective, but he is inviting us into relationship with him as well. That this God who stands sovereign over all creation is the same God who comes to his people lost in sin that they may know him, who covenants himself to his people and says, no matter what, I'm in this with you for the long haul. And behold, I will be with you until the end of the age, who according to Romans 8.28 is working all things and his sovereign power is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, who out of the overflow of his grace and his mercy invites us to know him in his beauty, in his majesty, in his power, and above all, in his grace to find our rest, our comfort, our joy, our peace, our security in him and him alone. And I would argue that in the midst of the year that we've had, we all desperately need right perspective. I would argue that. In a year where, for the most part, we haven't been able to gather together, where we haven't been regularly surrounded by other believers singing about how beautiful God is, where it seems like we're running on fumes by what's going on around us, it does become all too difficult to see God rightly. I I absolutely think we need some perspective shifting. And we do need to ask ourselves, uh, what are we doing with our questions? Are we bringing them to God? Are we bringing them to his word, to his people? Are we letting, or are we letting them devolve into entitled accusations based on our limited perspective? That is worthwhile to investigate because we do need right perspective. But more than perspective, we need relationship. More than perspective, we need relationship because when life caves in on you, whether that is caused by a global pandemic or an unexpected cancer diagnosis or fill in the blank for you, whatever it might be, you need more than a sentimental Jesus sitting by your side, stroking your hand, explaining to you that there's some sort of silver lining in this or that you know what doesn't kill you only makes you stronger or whatever other silly platitude people like to throw out. What you need is you need a God of infinite glory who sits upon the throne of the universe, who has promised to marshal every moment molecule in the universe in pursuit of his plan and your good, who regardless of if you ever understand why what is happening is happening, 
stands behind your salvation and says to you that he will let nothing stand in his way. That is what you need. That is what I need. And that is exactly who God is. And he shows us no clearer picture of that than in Jesus. Listen, let me be clear. I do not understand everything that God is doing in my life. And I probably won't until I meet Jesus face to face. But what I do know, what I do know is that God has revealed his intentions for me clearly in the cross of Jesus. For whatever happens to me or for whatever happens to you, it cannot mean that God is absent, that he is out of control, or that he doesn't love you. It can't mean that. In the cross, we see what is arguably the most astounding and confusing action that God would ever take. We see him willingly enter our suffering. On the cross, he did more than just promise to fix our pain, but he immersed himself in it. Even when things looked like they were out of control, they really weren't. I mean, feel me, like if there was ever a time that felt like God was not there or that God did not care or that he wasn't in control, it had to be when Jesus was crucified, right? But now, however, we know that there was never a time when God wasn't in control. We know that there was never a time when God was in more control than in those moments. And he took the worst, the most inexplicable event in human history, the murder of his son, and turned it for his glory and our good. And he did it all in love. He used the force of his cosmic power, his greatness, his majesty, to come for us in love. And hear me, I'll say it a little bit differently for those of us who need to hear it different. God will not answer all of your questions before he calls you to follow him. He won't do it. He never does it. He didn't do it for anybody, not for Moses, not for the prophets, not for his own disciples. He simply speaks in an undeniable way through burning bushes and empty tombs. And he invites us to believe. And I want you to hear me. If understanding everything is a prerequisite for you to believe, you will never believe. Faith is accepting what you can't understand on the basis of what you can understand. And there are many things that we, may, that we may look at and not be able to understand. But what we can understand is that Jesus really is who he says he is. And he can really do and has done all that he says he can do and has done. And so we may never understand why God does everything he does. But we can know who he is. And that's enough. That's enough. So as I was prepping for the sermon, um, I really feel like the Spirit woke me up to some things. Specifically, I stumbled across a quote from an early 20th century Old Testament uh, professor at Princeton Theological Seminary, a guy by the name of Robert Wilson. And this is what he said. He said, some men have a little God and they're always in trouble with him. He can't do any miracles. He doesn't intervene on behalf of his people. They have a little God and I call them little godders. Then there are those who have a great God. He speaks and it's done. He commands and it stands fast. 
He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of those who fear him. I read that quote and I realized, I wanna be a great God person. I wanna be a great God person, a person who has bold faith in a big God, a God who can do far more than I can think or imagine, a God whose power is infinite, a God whose promise is secured, and a God whose presence is pledged to me, a God who heals, a God who transforms, a God who commands the storm with but a word from his lips, a God who walks on water, a God who rolls away a stone, and a God who walks out of the grave. I want to be a great God person, a person who understands that God is God and I am not, and that is a very good thing. I want to be a great God person, and I am praying that you will want to be a great God person too.